Welcome to the Speechly podcast, where you can expect conversations exploring the best opportunities in the world of voice user interfaces. Today's discussion is from an interview that I did in the Voice Interface Club on Clubhouse. And in the discussion, I am joined by Mark Layden, who is the general partner of the Voice Punch Venture Fund. And we discuss various topics spanning across the worlds of both venture capital and also audio and voice technology. We covered topics such as why Mark started a venture fund that is focused specifically on audio and voice technology. We also looked at what makes a good voice tech investment in light of a hot venture capital market, the difference in value between third-party and first-party oriented voice experiences, and current user behavior with voice-enabled experiences in general. I hope you enjoy this interview with Mark Layden of the Voice Punch Venture Fund on the Speechly Podcast. Thanks for joining the conversation. We took a week off from the Voice Interface Club, but excited to be back. As usual, we plan to go for about an hour, but really before getting into the discussion, just want to give a, a brief intro to the club and, and then our guests for today. But uh, really, the, the mission of this club, the main focus is to explore different approaches for integrating voice interfaces into our technology and, and really looking outside of the, the traditional conversational or, or voice assistant model that a lot of us are familiar with. Uh, but today we do have a slightly different discussion. Uh, we're talking with Mark Layden, who is the general partner of the Voice Punch Venture Fund, uh, to really just have a discussion on the current state of voice tech uh, in the world of startups and, and venture capital. So, uh, Mark, we'd love to just jump into a quick intro. Could you give a background of, of yourself and, and Voice Punch and what you guys are up to? Sure. Thanks, Gong. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm excited to be on the, this whole uh, voice interface room you've set up. Very cool. So uh, I'm Mark Layden. For those of you who haven't met, I think I see a few in the room that I have, uh, which is cool. But um, my my role is I'm the GP at a venture fund that's focused on voice AI and audio. Um, so we've been around since investing since early 2019. Uh, we invest along the whole curve of adoption around voice AI technologies across a wide uh, spectrum or swath uh, of technology and uh, audio uh, investments. And so we look for really exciting companies doing creative things. Uh, and you know, clubhouse is a good example of that, of, uh, taking one of those ideas and moving forward into a social audio paradigm. So that's a quick background and happy to dive in and we can talk more about what we do at our fund or what we look for and where we are and anything that's interesting in this dialogue or conversation call. Yeah. Maybe we could just start with, uh, digging a little bit deeper on the, the background of voice punch. So you know, what, what started the, the overall fund? What, what's the, the background story of why you even started paying attention to uh, the voice technology conversational AI space in the first place? We'd, we'd love to hear the, the full sort of background um, and uh, ultimately how you got to today. All right. And so I'll try not to ramble, which I tend to do on podcasts. So I'll try, and, as, you, as I think you've mentioned in the past, Colin, being more succinct on Clubhouse helps. Help, uh, helps. So let me try that. So background was I was a typical tech entrepreneur operator for 20 or so years. Uh, punched in startups, a bunch of interesting areas. At least I thought they were interesting. Uh, had a couple exits and took that knowledge. And so four or five years ago, struck out and said, I'm going to spend more time with startups in a different capacity. I wasn't sure what that was. And what got me interested in voice was actually my father, who was also, funny enough, a serial tech entrepreneur. 
And uh, he was telling me about uh, Connected Home and how suddenly Connected Home was actually working and people were actually investing in Connected Home and, and buying more products. And I was like, that's interesting because it was always this um, X22 and this janky stuff. And uh, what, what, what occurred to me when I dug in a little bit deeper was that people were starting to buy a lot more connected devices in their home and their lights and their HVAC and all these other things. And one of the reasons was this new thing to come out called Alexa. And people are controlling their device with their voice. And I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about it. I mean, I'd, I'd used Siri and had probably a lot of the disillusionment early on until it started to get better that a lot of people probably had. And But what stuck for me was that, hey, th this thing uh, was allowing you to control different technologies in your home with your voice. And I said, well, what else could you control with your voice? And the answer is pretty much almost anything. So I started in early uh, 2019, the fund itself, um, and Colin actually helped a bit. And so thank you for that. But so I, the focus was, you know, how, how do we uh, play along investing in companies that are helping part of this new paradigm shift where your voice is using to control almost any form of technology, either as a primary or even a secondary interface. And we believe that's kind of the future state of existence. So we're committed uh, as investors uh, to uh, helping startups that are in that area do something, do interesting things and support the uh, overall growth of voice AI as well as audio startups. Awesome. And yeah, definitely want to spend the, the bulk of this conversation uh, sort of picking into maybe some of the different interesting themes or, or the different things that are catching your attention today, but uh, maybe a, a way to open up that, that conversation or even just look at a little bit of a higher level. It'd be interesting to get uh, maybe your current take on the state of venture capital and how that is relating to the overall voice tech climate today. Because it seems like we've been seeing uh, a lot of activity uh, around this world of, of audio and, and voice tech startups. So we'd just love to get your thoughts on uh, wh where, where, what's your sort of current take on the status of the, the industry? Because it seems like there's been a lot of um, activity, but at the same time, the, the overall venture community or the venture markets have also been getting a lot of activity. So uh, we'd love to get your sort of take to, to separate the signal from, from the noise, if you will. Yeah, it's like, Great question. And I've got a perspective and it's hard to know if I'm right or not, but we'll find out soon enough. Um, the rising tide floats off ships. So venture capital in general, as you mentioned, has seen a whole lot of influx of capital. And part of it's because people are chasing higher returns and ventures generating higher returns, particularly with the stock market being so high. Those exit value multiples have gotten even bigger. So people are paying up for more uh, in the early stage startup community and startup investment. And so that creates more noise, more capital. And it's kind of this reinforcing cycle. Um, but, you know, from a specific to the audio investment front, where we are on the, on the kind of the horizon and the life cycle is that, you know, you can look at it when we got in early 19, there really everything was pre-seed, seed, we invested sometimes first check-in uh, stages. Now, and I'll give you a couple of examples. So just knowing it's been on this uh, call or this conversation today, I figured I'd uh, do a little diligence on some of the some of the recent fundings. We're, but the point is, is that we're now seeing a lot more of the Series A uh, maturation of companies that have done well. Uh, everything from VoiceFlow, uh, which uh, Braden's done a great job, they raised 20 million. Converse now it does like restaurant uh, conversational AI, closed 15 million Series A last month. Um, uh, Val raised 13 and a half million they, from a Series A, and we just saw them in uh, the Google Assistant Accelerator earlier this spring. Uh, Kintsugi raised $8 million for voice biomarkers. 
Alovo, which is doing synthetic voice and some interesting stuff happening there. And, you know, your audience is probably familiar with things like Val Kilmer, uh, Anthony Bourdain, and others where synthetic voices are used to really make people come back to life. So, and, you know, the biggest one probably so far is Microsoft by Nuance uh, for $20 billion. Um, so it's coming across the board of Aston Furious. You're seeing more of that maturation. I think you've also seen that first wave of the voice investments. I've seen more recently maybe on the audio early stage stuff, and ourselves included. Uh, we just invested in a company that does um, uh, AI-powered audio learning um, for languages, and it's got a new novel approach. It's kind of exciting, and we're going to announce that a little later today. And another one, which we'll probably announce another week or so, in the assistance in entertainment, uh, helping people just listen to uh, sporting events and other events uh, on their phone in a new and novel fashion. So from a funding perspective alone, uh, I think we're definitely seeing larger rounds. We're seeing more of that maturation of the winners. We've also probably seen some starving out of the ones that aren't, right? I mean, there's definitely some changes that are happening in terms of which companies are getting funded and how and by who. And so some of the early stage stuff, people are relying on, uh, you know, Google or Amazon for discovery and app basis seem to be getting just starved to the point of extinction on a lot of them. Some are still going strong, but there's definitely been some challenges and some changes in terms of how we think about the market and what, what's investable and what's not. Yeah, that, that gave me uh, a few different threads that I definitely want to double tap on. But I, I think the first that um, everybody in the room would also appreciate is uh, you know, obviously we're, we're in Clubhouse having this discussion right now and this uh, whole attention around social audio. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it just took the world by storm <laughs> and um, it was really, you, you couldn't avoid it. Uh, but now I think, uh, you know, you can have this question of like the trough of disillusionment or some different questions around social audio. So I, I sort of have a two-part question for you. Um, first, what, what is your current take on social audio um, as we know it. And then the, the second piece, uh, as a follow-up to that, um, you mentioned some, some of these different verticals that have, have seen some, some funding attention over the last few months. Uh, you also mentioned that there is a, an investment that you're going to be announcing, but would love for you to also expand on any specific verticals or areas of focus um, that are specifically attractive to you uh, going into the, the last quarter of 2021. Sure. So I'll take those two questions in order. First one, Clubhouse, which Colin was actually really good at seeing it early on. Uh, so my hat's off to you on that one. Uh, but, you know, for Clubhouse is great. It legitimizes us all wearing our workout shirts all day. So it's like the perfect antidote for COVID, right? Suddenly there's not this obligation in the work world uh, to be dressed up and otherwise. And so we're all sitting around in our gym shorts doing Clubhouses all day. It's really fascinating. Um I've always been a fan of that uh, casual format, but you know, it's, you know, the Trump disillusionment for clubhouse, there's certainly a lot of value in clubhouse. I think clubhouse added a lot of uncertainty in venture in terms of what was going to happen with the uh, short form, long form, mid form content and podcasts and all of that. And it actually spooked us a little bit in trying to surf through that. It's definitely seems the noise is sorted out um, a little bit in terms of, you know, clubhouse has had, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's had its flame, but, you know, maybe a, a peak and a valley and then another peak comes after that. I'm not a predictor of these things. There's certainly a lot more options. Go to spaces, um, go to um, all these different places, Discord. Everybody's taken the concept and tried to make it their own. And so from a um, use case perspective, I think there's a lot of great ways that Clubhouse helps 
uh, provide more compelling content in a different variable or different format that seems to be appealing for a couple different areas and specifics. And I don't know, I'm not a good predictor of where Clubhouse goes or doesn't, but I certainly think they've tapped into something that I think is topical, particularly because of COVID and the remote work uh, perspective. Um, and so I'm, you know, hats off to the job the guys have done. From a second question, there's so many different areas of focus. We, you know, we look at the market in a very unique way because most funds, like we talk to other people, like, you know, are you a consumer or an enterprise fund? I'm like, well, that's not really how we think about the world, but okay. Um, and so we try to break it down in our own buckets of how we think about it. And so we have our own categorizations. Um, some of the ways or some of the things that we're seeing a lot of that are interesting uh, to us from an investment perspective, a lot of things around spatial audio acoustics, uh, meetings, uh, and the future of work. There's so many different tools out there that focus on improving our out of office experiences because the home is now the office, whether, you know, it's better controls or voice enablement within your office facility to better meetings to improve sound quality, sentiment analysis. Are your people meeting and doing a good job? Fascinating what's happening in the future of work. We are certainly living through one of the most exponential changes in the future of work we've ever seen. Um, we've looked a lot at, and we, one of our investments we're going to announce uh, in a week or so, uh, in audio-enhanced entertainment experiences. It covers so many different areas. I mean, a lot of companies are trying to improve whether the game itself, uh, if you're playing gaming, but also other forms of entertainment experience, whether it's you know in in uh, uh, events and live uh, event attractions using your voice, whether it's uh, participating remotely using voice and audio. And so all these different areas are just uh, popping up. Other things we're seeing a lot of, a lot of trends and focus on hospitality, specifically from both Amazon and Google. Uh, Amazon just did an update to Alexa for hospitality. Google's made more of a focus. Um, we've got one portfolio company in hospitality that's doing really, really well. So we think it's got a long way to go uh, and a lot of room to run. So those are good investment areas. And, you know, maybe, maybe we'll find some more on this call. Uh, that will come across or some of the audience will bring up the things they're seeing. But, you know, this is the reason, one of the reasons we participate in these events is always because we want to meet more people. And, you know, we hear, we get referrals all the time. Our best investments almost always come from referrals from other uh, startups who know somebody who's doing something interesting. And one conversation leads to another and eventually they become a portfolio company. So excited, you know, excited about all the different things that are happening. I think um, the climate's very healthy. I think, you know, people talk about trying to, are we in a good period or a bad period? There's so much capital, good ideas get funded. Um, so I wouldn't, I, I think that's uh, the, the market is efficient, right? Um, when, uh, another investor was, I was on a podcast a while back, is talking about 1% of uh, companies get venture capital. That sounds about right, uh, because not every company needs venture capital. It changes some of the um, incentives, some of the operational optics. And just things that aren't, aren't always the best outcome or best result for companies in general. So, you know, you just got to think about that the right way for your company or your startup. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think that this also, uh, some of these different um, themes or, or areas of focus also uh, leads into the, the other sort of thread that I wanted to explore a little bit. And I think you alluded to it earlier um, around this, uh, maybe sort of a, a movement towards a little bit of a lack of um, support towards some of the third-party um, tooling or different features within some of the more general platforms. So I would just be curious to get your sort of current take on opportunities uh, and interest in opportunities 
for Voice Punch from the perspective of building on top of some of these third-party platforms uh, versus companies that are looking at uh, different types of voice tech tooling in order to create more first-party type uh, experiences. Uh, would like to get your current thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, well, look, so the platforms, uh, Google and Amazon particularly, did something really impressive in that they created a, a vehicle for software developers to more efficiently create compelling voice experiences. And so that really, you know, whether it's the developer tools and all the support they provide um, and some of the other things they've done over the years has been a real credit to them uh, and what their efforts are. But the one thing that they didn't do a great job of was helping um, these 3P application developers to promote within the platforms their uh, solutions or applications to the right audiences. And so though that lack of ability for discovery, which everybody talks about this, and we've talked about this many times, Colin, is, you know, everybody's like, how do we solve it? How do we fix this? Well, it's not necessarily broken. It's just designed that way. And so what we've gone and changed is we've gotten, you know, over time, we evolve our investment thesis criteria and looking at 3P applications. One of the key things for us is we look at, um, does the uh, company or the software developer have a route to market that's independent or separate from the platform themselves? And we found that that is one of the keys to success. So if you're going to rely on the platform to be the place where people are going to find out about you, um, it's probably a lower probability of success, not, not zero but it's certainly not 99% either. The companies that we've seen do better, both uh, in the market as well as in our portfolio, actually have a direct line to their end customer that doesn't depend on the platform themselves. So my opinion is, is that um, those are the better investments from a just investment perspective for us uh, um, currently and how we think about it. From a future perspective, the competition in that dichotomy between 3P and 1P I think it's a real problem. I think my impression is, is that there's been a movement into the amount of support that's been given by particularly Amazon uh, in terms of 3P developers may have changed uh, and they're probably focusing resources in different ways. So it may be in, you know, better, better um, integrations, better um, developer tool sets and less about promoting the actual applications in the marketplace uh, within there. Um, it, I think Google, Google is a little bit later to the party in some ways promoting it. It spent a little bit more time recently on promoting different application developers, but they don't, they don't, they don't, it's not as clear to them um, where that all ends. And if we think about Amazon, I think you and I talked about this, Colin, I think it's a really interesting point is that if Amazon's first idea around Alexa was, hey, this would be a great way to help people buy stuff on Amazon.com using their voice, won't that be great? And if you know, if you judge the success of uh, Alexa based on that objective, then it's an abject failure because e-commerce is really not materialized in a meaningful way uh, within their platforms at all. So hopefully that, that that continues to evolve and grow, but it's it's an interesting question mark that's not yet been answered in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, more to be seen there. Um, I, want, I want to sort of pivot into uh, just the this idea of user behavior with just voice-enabled experiences in general today. I, I think that um, just the perspective or, or the different uh, opportunities or companies that you're able to get uh, an insight into at Voice Punch, you see a lot of different takes on, um, or maybe a lot of different interpretations on what voice tech can enable today. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective, um, because I think we talk about, uh, like you mentioned, this idea of discovery on a, a general voice assistant platform as a problem, but 
Do you think that uh, the experiences or the, the types of voice-enabled experiences that we're building today are actually aligning with where the, the user behavior uh, with like a voice-enabled device is at today? Uh, good question. Um, I, you know, it's the, what is it, the Wayne Gretzky analogy, skate the where the puck's going to be, not where it is. The challenge with voice is that that's a lot of what's been built is skating where the user's going to be. And the problem is a user hasn't moved as fast as people would have liked. So the behaviors are still fairly limited. I mean, those popular applications within the speakers specifically are just like, you know, set a, set a kitchen timer, uh, turn on the music in my radio, or, you know, change the AC to 50 or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and so command-based interactions are fairly, uh, it, they work fairly well. They're easy to do and people get an understanding of them. It's the turn-based interaction models and the supporting AI behind it that hasn't evolved as quickly. It's really getting a lot better. I mean, I, you know, I think the problem you have is these things go in kind of big, um, they plateau and then they suddenly they spike up again. And it's hard to predict when those spikes occur. But, you know, the, the experiences and seeing some of the stuff that's coming out of, uh, you know, some of the Google's labs and other areas in terms of AI and having real, you know, experiential uh, conversations where you can have this turn-based two-part two dialogue, it's getting better and better. And eventually what will happen is, you know, the thing about voice technologies is somewhat it's a, it's a comprehensive and overwhelming experience, meaning it hits you from so many different angles. You know, people talk to their phones, they talk to their voice speaker, they talk to their car, sometimes they even talk to their spouse, you know, whatever. But, you know, the thing is, is that um, all this is happening in a mass uh, all around us, and it's not as clear that people are aware of it. Versus like when the iPhone came out, people were like, oh, I got to get an iPhone to find out what a mobile graphical user interface is and why I need that. Why I need to buy apps, because that's a thing. But with voice, this is happening all the time, so it's not as acute, so we don't focus on it as much. And so those experiences and user behaviors are happening slowly, but we ha we we're, we're going to see it. I think the obvious place you'll see it first is like in call centers, right? We know the feature, 99% of call center calls will be through a computer and an AI backend and a voice experience for sure. There's just there's 50 million reasons why that's going to happen, and it's already happening today to a good degree. Um, that will happen, and eventually be like, oh wait, I'm not talking to people anymore. So I think that as people start to figure out how to do conversations, call centers, and otherwise, and they get comfortable with it in a different way, they'll find other use cases, or it'll be an encapsulated use case which they can understand and not be worried about doing. But I think there's still a lot of bringing the audience along that hasn't happened. And it's going to take some time to do that. And it's hard to predict when it's going to happen. You just know it's going to happen. Yeah. And I, I think the call center, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, and I think the call center is also a good example of, you know, just some of the different core natural language understanding or, or speech recognition uh, tech in action. Uh, but I guess as we think about uh, more along the lines of using different types of voice interfaces, whether that's uh, a voice interface to uh, a voice assistant type of um, experience or just a voice interface that's that's more simple like your um, Xfinity or, or some sort of TV remote for command and control. Uh, more along the lines of uh, engaging with the voice interface, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts around so something that I've been kind of tossing around a lot. And, and it's this idea of um, the fact that we made a voice or voice, voice user interface experiences get so closely associated with uh, a human-like experience. Uh, I think that uh, if we look back to the iPhone, early iPhone, things like 
having the the notes the notepad look like notes and and make similar noises some of these things um were a good way of training users how to actually engage with uh this new type of tap and and swipe and and touch sort of interface but i'm curious do you think that uh making voice so human um is actually setting back some of the experiences um, I think you question how you manage expectations. I mean, everybody talks about like the Turing tests and it can be self-aware and all that. And that's like the ever distant future. I mean, it might happen. It could happen. Probably should happen. Probably will happen. I don't know. Um, so I think the question is, is how do we set expectations the right way in terms of that interface versus saying something more, I don't know, functional, right? You can just get something done. It's why we all like using, you know, kitchen timers on our Alexa as the example, but um, I think that's true in a range of things. I think your example is spot on in terms of like your TV and, you know, voice control. I mean, a TV in the future, I mean, all TVs are going to be just a voice controlled screen, right? And it's, it'll do a lot of different things. It'll, it'll play entertainment. It'll get you information. It'll be work related. It'll have all these different things. A TV is going to be an interesting uh, device because everybody has a TV. Everybody has an upgrade cycle of TVs and the upgrade cycle has already begun that all TVs probably manufactured in the last two years have some kind of voice service embedded. And as you go through that upgrade cycle, people don't have to have bought a voice speaker or something else. They're going to have some kind of a dominant device already there. And the question is, how do they use that? So I guess it's an interesting question. There's probably some good data. I haven't looked at it recently. You might be more aware of it, Colin. If there's any like customer or user satisfaction questions around voice experiences. Like what's that, you know, what's that look like? Uh, and are people happy with those experiences? I mean, on a personal level, I'm certainly a lot happier now using Siri than I was, you know, four or five years ago when it just, it, it, you know, got every other word or, you know, I almost never text with my fingers anymore. It's so inefficient that the big gap now, this is a whole other market opportunity is that when I use my voice, you know, how sometimes things don't get transcribed correctly. I have to be able to read it and I'm not wearing my glasses. I'm like, did I just send that? Um, and I'm like, Ooh, that was probably not the right word I wanted to use. Uh, good, not goats, but anyway. So yeah, I, I don't know if I have a good thought on that one beyond your question, uh, Colin. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I, I guess maybe to even expand on uh, like where the thought comes from for myself, I just think that probably it, it's ingrained in in myself to um, if there if there's an association with a human, I almost have like this higher bar um, or these higher expe- like you said these it's setting these expectations and it. I, maybe the better way of thinking about the question would almost be like, are the expectations around uh, a human conversation just so high that it's almost setting up um, a conversational voice experience for uh, just a really tough task with um, where, where users are at, I guess, with comfort in engaging with uh, a voice interface today. But, but yeah, that's, that's something that, uh, I mean, only time will tell and it'll be interesting. Obviously hindsight will be twenty twenty. Um, as some of these ex- experiences continue to mature, but yeah, something uh, definitely keeping in the back of my mind. Uh, but m- maybe we could take a, a segue into uh, uh, sort of the the next topic that I wanted to touch on. And I think everybody, um, anytime somebody is is interested in the world of venture or startups, everybody wants to get a better idea of what VCs and investors are actually looking at to make their decisions. Um, so maybe we could get a little bit more specific. I, I know you mentioned a few different uh, verticals of interest. So some of these things around spatial audio, future of work, um, some of these audio enhanced entertainment, hospitality. Uh, so these verticals makes a lot of sense. But 
maybe for getting a little bit more specific into the selection criteria, uh, what do you think makes a good investment today? And it, maybe it's it's twofold. Uh, are there any general traits of just an early stage startup that that gets you attracted today? And then um, are there any more specific traits of a, an audio or, or voice tech company that that also piques your interest? Yeah, um, so I think that's a good question, Colin, from two, taking it from both perspectives, because we look at it, one is specific to the company and the other is specific to the market, uh, and the two have to line up. Uh, from the company perspective, we kind of have these five buckets uh, that we look at, but really the first three are the most important. Um, the first three are timing, TAM, or market size, uh, and team. And the fourth and fifth are product and then financials. And some of that's, it's early, particularly on financials, so it's not as interesting. But, you know, when you think about what makes a difference on a startup's perspective is, you know, is there a clear and compelling economic reason for a company to exist? Um, and is it a better, is this, this timing is that the ecosystem itself, it's around, will, will this enhancement, uh, will this, will this product, uh, actually make it better? Right. And can you create something that's actually a really good experience? Is the time right? Because, you know, before, you know, 2000, uh, for the iPhone in 2012, 2013, you really couldn't have Uber. You didn't have all the satellite GPS coordinates, all the graphical user interface. You had these, you know, these flip phones and they're nice and they send texts and they could, you know, talk, but it really wasn't available. So the time is an important consideration and it's, and it's the hardest one probably to make. Um, TAM, we look at the market size. You know, we say, and it's somewhat of a generic thing, but we decide say it's got to be a billion dollar market. And so that doesn't mean that um, somebody's business isn't a good business who comes to us or isn't done, doesn't come to us. It's more one of saying that the way venture works is we're based on outsized returns from a, a portfolio. Um, and we, we, don't, we don't make the fund return based on having a batting average of saying 5%. The best investors are right maybe 30% of the time in venture. And, you know, I tell startups all the time, I said, look, be careful when you talk to a venture capitalist because they're wrong 70% of the time. So if you told someone that from the offset, like, oh, you know, maybe they're not so smart. Um, and so the model only works because the way venture works is that those, those couple outliers, you can get a portfolio, return the entire fund and get you an incredible financial outcome. But the only way that works is that the market size has got to be significant. So we look for market sizes that are big enough. Um, uh, to meet that threshold. We look at, you know, where where the potential is in the market for displacing either incumbencies or others uh, to really take over and take market share away from. And then third, and this is, you know, I, you know, team is people have different perspectives on that. Um, the biggest thing for us is really the ability for the team to be humble enough to pivot. And most great successful startups have a pivot in some way, shape or form and some have multiple before they end up. Uh, at their end state. And so that humility of the team and the ability to both be passionate about what they're doing, but also understand that, hey, our business model is probably going to change um, and being okay to accept that. Because if they're, if they're, if there's not that flexibility, um, it's difficult to see when they hit adverse times or their product, they're so excited about, oh, we built this great thing and suddenly no one likes it. You know, we, we created a solution for a problem no one really cared about. Okay, well, what else can we use that solution for? And so it takes a lot of Humility to say, okay, what are we doing? What can we do differently so we can get, get to a good outcome? And so we look for that to help us uh, as an investor. The other things we look on product uh, and specifics around where, where that fits within our thesis, uh, particularly on voice and audio, financials. We have some goals in terms of just 
you know, some basics in terms of valuation, but also we also like to look at um, situations where the founders control more than 70% of the equity because we don't like, it doesn't, it's not a good outcome where the investors win and the entrepreneurs don't. That almost never happens. Um, it happens rarely. I think it happened with um, MySpace, uh, right? But it was a kind of a screwy deal where all the, all the internal people got hosed uh, other than uh, the couple of founders, which I think uh, Rupert Murdoch took care of them. But anyway, these things happen. Um, and so those are kind of our criteria for finding the right startups. The other, and then just, I think you asked about, um, well, I'll tell you what, when I stop for a second, I've talked a lot. What the second part of your question, be a little, you're, you're asking about how do we, what market segments, what was the, what was your question? Maybe just make sure I have it. Yeah, I, I was just, so I think that was a more, more general, um, like what attracts you to, um, just a, an early stage startup, but. Are there any traits um, or any metrics or any different things that you look at for a voice tech um, or an audio focused startup that might be uh, different sort of unique uh, traits or uh, pieces of a business that, that gets you excited um, that, is, that is more specific to the, the category of, of voice or audio technology? Um, I think what gets us excited uh, in startups we like is similar for voice and audio than almost in every other startup. And it's, it's that criteria in the market. Um, sometimes it's early metrics, sometimes engagement. We had, we had one startup we invested in where they had a free uh, pilot version of the product, but the engagement was incredible. Uh, we were just like, wow. We we're like, they had product market fit understood because engagement was so high on their pilot product. They said, it's a no brainer. You've discovered product market fit. And usually the rule of thumb used to be you have to be at like two, three million in revenue before you really had clear understanding of product market fit. The, the, this company, and there's many others, uh, where it was just you see these signals uh, in terms of engagement and usage. So, yeah, clearly there's value. Question is monetization and how much money can you make and how big is the market? And those are all real questions. But from a product market fit, that was an important uh, forward indicator. I mean, venture capital at its core is just, you know, falling in line to the end of its logical conclusion and trying to forecast that. That's all we do, right? We look for, you're here, where can you go? And if you follow the line and it looks really good and you fit these criteria and all these things that are important, some tangible, some intangible, some, some metrics are, especially in early stage, there's the, the metrics are a lot more challenging uh, because a lot of times they're, they're pre-revenue. It's a lot of times they're pre-product. So you're trying to assess market sizing. You're trying to look for market adjacencies and will customers migrate. We do a lot of work in diligence in terms of understanding the market. We landscape and canvas all the companies that are either in the space or near the space or thinking about going in the space to try and understand, you know, where, what's the landscape look like and can they, A, make it work and B, if they make it work, can they be successful? I mean, there's some areas in like, you know, the whole space around, uh, meeting note taking and things like that is super crowded and they're great products from early days. And I, I'm a high, high believer and high conviction that in the future, we're going to record all of our conversations and transcribe them. So we'll have a parallel data store to our emails in the same way we can go back like, Oh yeah, remember we, remember talking about that issue with that company four years ago. Oh yeah. Let me just look, you know, and suddenly, like, Oh yeah. I remember that conversation it was, XYZ Corp, and they're having problems with their supplier and blah, blah, blah. Fascinating. So there's no question there's high utility there, but there's high competition there as well. And so I think it's a question mark for, you know, how do we, how do, how do, um, look at it the right way? 
uh, so that we make investments that make sense and the companies have the ability to actually execute. And if they're successful, that they can get a disproportionate share of the market as it gets to maturity, which can then get us to our exit values where we can return the fund. We look at every company we invest in, is can it, is it going to be big enough to return the fund by that one investment? And if its potential is yes, that's a good positive indicator on top of the 50 other signals we look at. Uh, but that, that's one of the key things for us to understand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, I have one more, one more question for you, but if, if there's anybody in the room that's listening that, that has a question for Mark um, or myself, please feel free to raise your hand. We'll, we'll make sure to uh, bring people up here and, and ask those questions. But uh, Mark, I think the, the last or, or main sort of theme or topic that I wanted to touch base with you on is just this idea around some of the, the different lessons that you've learned through the voice tech uh, or through your, through your investing experience. So uh, you mentioned that Voice Punch has been around here for a few years, and I'm sure that you've uh, come in with some assumptions and, and you've learned a lot along the way. So are there any like two or three different big lessons that you've learned over the last few years as it relates to uh, investing into this category that would make sense for us to expand upon, expand upon a little bit? Sure. Well, we already touched on one, which was not relying on platform applications and discovery for how to promote them. So uh, that that's definitely changed our thesis and how we invest. So, you know, three years ago or two and a half, whenever we got in this, we would have invested in companies just because they um, had a great application that made a lot of sense. Uh, but uh, and that relied on the platforms more. But the recognition that that really wasn't a solvable problem in today's construct, we said we need to come up with other solutions. So funny enough, we have other companies that started at the same time. We, we had that direct route to market, which has been much more successful than some of the other ones. Um, other lessons we've learned, um, we, you know, we look at more vertically oriented solutions versus horizontal. And I think even speechly, uh, to your credit, you know, figures, figure that out early and building out these NLU um, solutions um, and where you can go build a very great experience now for a more narrow use case. It's these broad use cases are a little more challenging with voice. So the verticalization, I think, has been helpful to say people that really focus on narrow areas are, are better able to get market share and traction to get to escape velocity and get to that next level of funding and financing. Um, in the entrepreneur world, we definitely focus a little bit more now on their uh, um, entrepreneur's ability to fundraise. And that's, you know, sometimes that's easier to gauge, sometimes that's harder to gauge, but entrepreneurs that are good at fundraising, that gives them at least an oxygen supply long enough um, to get to um, long enough in the game to maybe help solve for a pivot or make a couple of pivots along the way to get the solution that really is going to be the big home run. And so fundraising capability, I you know, there's there's one company, I won't mention them, but I've been super impressed by the entrepreneur's fundraising capability. Less impressed maybe on operationally execution, but far away has contracted immense amounts of capital in this space and done an incredible job. And I think that's a real art uh, and it's a real skill. And so it, it just adds one more criteria to think about when we look at investors in terms of who to invest in and what, what's important. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Makes makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, especially what you're mentioning around this idea of vertical uh, versus horizontal opportunities and voice could could even be a whole discussion in and of itself. So uh, probably more to talk about there. But uh, I want to make sure that we spend some time uh, answering some of these other questions that the listeners have. So uh, Bao Bali, I believe you're the first one to come up. Uh, feel free to ask your question. Thank you, Thank you so much, uh, Colin. Um, 
thanks mark uh, i think it was great listening to you again um especially the fact that you know i i know you i've been following you and uh, i will continue to do that until i get a check from you and uh, so uh, <laughs> i love it but um just wanted one question i had one question that um where do you see voice commerce really uh, going and do you see that as a big opportunity immediate in near future or it's uh, still a two or three years away yeah well first by like great the great to get you uh in this clubhouse room you're doing a great job with tiny chef um and you know keep keep pinging me and one just suggestion for anybody's listening to one of the best things you can do because a lot of times we don't like to meet an entrepreneur the first time when they're asking for money we like to meet them sooner and keep keep tabs on them uh and so a lot of times that happens and you know six months later a year later we'll we'll, we'll reconnect but one of the best things you can do as a startup is constantly have a list of potential investors or and existing investors that you're updating every month or so. Um, and I think that can be super powerful because as a VC, we get pinged for a lot of different things from a lot of different people. And to be efficient with our time, it's difficult uh, to always stay in touch. But we'll, we'll, we'll read your letters, so don't make them crazy long, but you know, make them short and update. I think it's super helpful. Um, so my like, sure. question uh, was, I'm sorry, repeat your question one more time. I apologize. I'll make sure I got it. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, no that, I, I definitely follow that advice, uh, Mark. Uh, I, I've added you in our potential investor list, and you should be receiving you know, mails from me constantly. Anyway, so uh, the question is around voice commerce. Uh, as a venture catalyst, you know, as a VC, where do you see, uh, when do you see voice commerce really catching up? When, when did that, uh, you know, hockey stick growth, you think you will happen? That's a terrific question. And I'd be a lot smarter if I could give you a good answer about the when. Um, it will happen. Um, I can say that with high confidence. But when will it happen? It, look, that's, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier, but this is definitely one of my thoughts is voice commerce has been one of the slowest areas. Uh, and, you know, it's baffled, you know, the Amazons of the world because obviously they create Alexa for voice commerce. That would be a big fail just looking at it that way. Um, and even they've, they've said, look, it's not moving as fast as we thought it would. And you see all these statistics on voice commerce is going to be 20 billion, 40 billion, all these numbers. And I'm like, you know, other than like reordering coffee on Amazon or my Starbucks latte in the morning, there's not as much happening there. At least I don't, this is, this is by the, this is my, you know, the uh, problem of looking at it too close to my own experiences, but I don't personally find that voice commerce is driving a lot. I mean, every once in a while. Amazon will say, hey, you can get a you know a deal through Alexa and this, that, and the other. So oh, check that out. Mildly interesting. I don't think it's spiking huge uh, activity. The one thing that, that I think is going to be big and it's just starting right now is they're finally getting into Amazon doing proactive or allowing for proactive notifications for 3P. Uh, not 3P. That's not really the right way to say it. I know they're working with some hardware partners. So in theory, they're also 3P developers. Right. In the past, it's only been Amazon. They've kind of hogged the ability to do proactive notifications. Hey, your package has been delivered. There's a message from Amazon and your light ring rings up. But now they're starting to do this. And they just announced this recently with like Anova, who makes um, sous vide, I think, the cooking style uh, temperature thingy in the jiggies you put in your water or whatever. You guys probably know way more than I do. But um, and they're letting you say, oh, yeah, hey, you can get alerts now from your Nova uh, sous vide thing 
uh, and it'll tell you, hey, you've got 30 minutes left or there's, there's an hour left or whatever. So I learned from being in tech and mobile stack companies as well that the most powerful, compelling thing for engagement and stickiness ever created was push notifications on a mobile device. So proactive or push notifications on voice speakers specifically is one of the best things that ever happened. Uh, and it's early days and, you know, Amazon has been moving super fast on a lot of these things. Um, and they're trying to balance, you know, how much is privacy versus allowing to creating a good environment where it's not spam. But on the flip side, I think from a developer perspective and a hardware manufacturer perspective, it's a huge thing for me to start getting messages because what it does is it start, starts to mean that I'll attenuate some of my attention span to checking in with my voice speaker to see what's happening or if I've missed a notification or just getting them automatically versus now it's one directional me telling it what to do versus it telling me what to do. And it's like, you know, and every other mobile stack application now tells you, Hey, Waze says you need to leave in 20 minutes to make your meeting, right? Well, that needs to transfer into your voice speakers as a paradigm shift. I think that's one of the biggest things that will help both stickiness engagement and will also drive commerce. But it's a, it's a really hard thing to predict. Uh, Abuli, I don't, I don't know that I have any good answers there other than it will happen eventually. I just don't know how it happens. And I do see it's been a struggle for some of the e-commerce um, uh, companies out there. Uh, th thanks, uh, Mark. I think uh, in, in my experience and uh, you know, we, as you already know, we are one of the 10 partners with whom uh, Amazon did a pilot for wise shopping. And uh, we have seen pretty good traction already in India and and now we're expanding that into North America as well. Uh, we, we have started pilots even in North America now. And the one big thing which is lacking is it is still very tightly controlled in Amazon ecosystem, which we are trying to now break, get a breakthrough with uh, the new feature which they have added sent to phone. Uh, with that, you know, we will be able to enable other third-party e-commerce, uh, voice commerce as well. So, yeah. Uh, it is getting interesting. I just wanted to you know, hear from VC perspective as to where it's heading. Thank, thanks for those inputs. Thanks for the question. That, it's awesome. And good luck on pushing Amazon. I hope that works out really well to get yeah. them moving because that would be awesome. Yeah, thanks. Even, fortunately, even Google is working with us in that space and uh, we're getting really good traction. Thanks for that. Awesome. Maybe one more point to add on the, the whole voice commerce discussion. I, I also think it's important that as an, an industry, uh, we do a little bit more work in defining exactly what we even mean by voice commerce. So I think if you would ask um, even everybody in this room to write down on a little piece of paper what their definition of voice commerce is, you might be surprised to see uh, what people really <laughs> interpret that as. Is it using uh, a voice-enabled device to search for a product and then go all the way to purchase? Is it, like Mark said, some of these other uh, types of interaction models where it's just a, a repurchase behavior. Uh, I think that there's a lack of definition around that and, and maybe to make it a little bit more tangible around a use case. So for, for Speechly, for example, um, where we're focusing more on specific parts of the e-commerce journey. So whether it's the, the search behavior or the filtering behavior, uh, or maybe doing things like creating a list uh, before you go shopping. Uh, we find that being more surgical around um, some of these different implementations of, of voice uh, leads to a good commerce experience. But again, how do you define uh, a voice commerce experience? I, I think that there's definitely more that we can be doing there uh, as well. 
but um, yeah, that, that's just sort of my two cents on, on the topic. But um, thank you for that, that question as well. Uh, Hunter, I, I know that you uh, jumped up here as well. Do you have a, a question or, or comment to add? Hey, yeah. So um, thanks for you know, having this great conversation, learning a lot. Um, Mark, if a voice startup is pre-rev and they are building a wait list for their product, how large would that or how large should that waitlist be um, for a VC to be interested? That's a good question. It depends. Is it an enterprise product? Is it a B2C uh, consumer product? Um, the, you know, that's a good question. I, I, I discount backlog. I hear it all the time. Oh, we got 200 people waiting to try out our product. I go, that's great. What about the ones that are using it? Because what really interests me uh, this is this is my perspective, and you might get five VCs with ten other opinions on this, but I, I like to see the actual numbers. Like, okay, so how many people are using it? What's engagement look like? How long did they stick around for? You know, what's their thirty day attrition rate? What are those kind of metrics that tell me you've got something that's sticky or provides value? And you know, a wait list is interesting uh, for sure, and maybe you can use that or leverage that in fundraising to create some noise. If it's like, oh my gosh, no one's doing this, um, but you know, it's just a question uh, for what's the right balance for your startup and how much do you gain by having a people trying to get in versus they just kind of forget about it versus uh, how much you get by getting them in the door and actually using the product. So you get that feedback. If you don't get product feedback, unless people are actually using uh, your product. So that's that's the trade off. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Um, I appreciate that. I've got one more question for you, if you don't mind. What attributes are you looking from founders that you would invest in? Um, I think we covered a little bit, just to repeat, um, adaptability and humility. So that ability to pivot, looking for passion driven, right? So mission driven, passionate founders are always awesome because they're going to figure out a way to be successful. And that last thing I talked about already, again, is ability to raise capital, right? You've got to show, I mean, we do see deals and this is unfortunate that happens, but when no one has else is investing in a deal and you've shopped around a bunch of times, you're kind of like, who's the sucker in the room? You don't want it to be you. So we like to see momentum on fundraising. Um, and so that ability to raise capital is a good indicator of, you know, of some of that, some of that, uh, some of the characteristics are important in um, a founding team uh, to make that happen. So those are a couple of the characteristics. There's a bunch of others uh, that you learn over the time. And there's not one size fits all entrepreneur. I mean, you look, it used to only be white males right? We're doing tech startups. And so it turns out there's actually a whole set of underserved communities out there uh, that are minority, female, and otherwise that are doing great things. And so I think that, you know, it's not one size fits all, but there are some key characteristics or breadcrumbs that tell us to chance this entrepreneur is going to make it work. Got it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank, thanks for that, that question, Hunter. And if there's anybody else in the room, I know we've had some, some people join later, uh, that might have some some additional questions. We're talking about uh, just the current state of startups and venture capital in the the world of audio and voice tech. Uh, Kaleem, how, how's it going? Thanks for for coming up. Do you have a, a question comment for Mark? Hey, Colin. Thanks for joining us. I joined a little bit late, so I, I, I'm not sure what the what the conversation was earlier. But you know, I'm curious in terms of um, uh, investment and founding teams and so on to build on what Hunter was saying. Um, you know, typically and historically, we've seen um, uh, technical founders, uh, primarily out of engineering, um, and I'm wondering, um, you know, particularly in the in the voice um, AI space, 
and interface space. What um, what are you seeing in terms of uh, founders and co-founders uh, of other backgrounds and disciplines, whether it be design, you know, sales, marketing, uh, you know, product management, uh, what have you? Thanks. I'm Cleveland to speak. Um, that's a hard one because we, so we invest in like, I think we're at 2% um, or one and a half. Prudential spends when we benchmark it of the companies we talk to. So we talk to you, this do simple math, 50 to one uh, investments. We talk to so many. I don't know there's one single trend we're seeing um, specifically in terms of whether they're technical founders, they're market uh, oriented founders or the like. I don't think one size fits all. Um, we, you know, some people have great pedigrees. I mean, it's funny. I, I, I don't know there's a direct correlation. We've invested in some folks uh, that have super high pedigrees and have been underwhelming. And we've invested some that have, you know, no pedigrees and been amazing. So I think it's more about the person, um, than the actual, where they worked or the exact skill set. I mean, it certainly, you see this happens that VCs sometimes are sheep. They follow the crowd. Um, so that was like what happened with clubhouse, right? They do is basically a genius marketing strategy to get the VCs frothing at the bit. I think there's like, can't remember there was 80 or 90 investors in the first round. So everybody got this tiny piece allocation uh, in Clubhouse and everybody was frothing at the bit uh, because they did a great job of marketing and why this is going to be the next best thing because uh, of pedigree and the founders and they had great relationships with uh, Andrews and Sequoia and some others. So anyway, I, I don't think there's one size fits all. Um, I think the market, as I was mentioning earlier, is much more moving towards more diverse uh, founder uh, founders. And in fact, you get benchmarked on the number of diversity investments you've made. I think they're going to add impact investments too, which is another big area. And I think they're all good areas. Um, we are, you know, we, we've factored that into all of our thinking and the, the founders. We're looking for great ideas. We're looking for great companies. And we can't say we're colorblind. Uh, exactly. We do try and seek out things that aren't necessarily on the beaten path. But at the end of the day, it's got to be the right entrepreneur doing the right kinds of things, with the right perspective and personality to be successful that we want to back. Mark, that was, uh, that was kind of interesting. Uh, I, was, I was thinking in terms of, you know, kind of, as I said earlier, the, the historical kind of pattern. I think you kind of <laughs> described it as the, the sheep kind of mentality where, um, you know, you, you, your, your primary founder or co-founders had to be you know, engineering background, deep engineering background. Um, right. I think in, 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 you know, I'd say the last decade, there was a bit of a trend um, around design-led co-founders and, and the founders in particular, um, particularly after Airbnb, uh, kind of uh, made a splash. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I'm just wondering uh, if that trend is continuing. Um, and you've already talked about impact investment and, and you know, diversity investment, particularly uh, following yeah. the events in the last year or so. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, as I said, the, the, I was kind of really focusing on, um, trying to focus on that, you know, engineering design, yeah. you know, product It's management. more important for us on the technical investments we make, uh, and doing the diligence in terms of the, the founders and whether they're product, product led, uh, engineering led, what, what that focus is. Um, we'll get a little deeper in terms of that pedigree of the founders and their ability to actually be successful. But. Again, people put a lot of name brand uh, affinity in VC for like, yes, this guy worked at Google, he's worked at Airbnb. And there's there's those things factor in more so than the specifics around the actual footprint of the founding team. There's some folks that may have a or opinion. I just don't have one. And I'm sure they're probably smarter about it than I am. I guess is the answer I'd tell you. <laughs> no worries. Thanks. It sounds like you're, you're making plenty of smart investments as it is. 
Hey, Clay, may I have a, a thought there as well? Um, so I, I actually used to be an associate for, for Mark at Voice Punch, and uh, something that I picked up that I thought was interesting around this idea of, especially in the earliest of stages, so pre-seed when there's only a, maybe uh, a handful of folks working on the product, um, something that I picked up from just talking with, with other investors that do look for um, there to be, you know, maybe there's a, a business, a business individual, a, a tech individual or, or some sort of a um, operation. Again, what the, the actual makeup um, I think can change. However, I know that some people, why they were looking for that is um, pretty much uh, first off, most people can't do it all by themselves today. Uh, at some point you are going to need some, some supporting roles to uh, round out where you aren't as, as efficient or aren't as skilled, but also it's, it's this, uh, um, almost a proxy to show whether or not you're able to convince other people to buy into the vision. So if you're not able to get the the co-founder um, or the, the co-founders on the team, how are you going to be able to build a, a venture scale um, company in the first place? So I know that there's other founders or, or other investors that look at it very simply at that point or, or, or an early stage of um, what is this individual's ability to actually tell a story and get people to buy into the vision around them. So uh, again, that's just uh, an anecdotal piece of information, but um, something that that's stuck with me around this idea of, of early co-founders as well. Awesome. Well, I think we are about at time. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for, for coming in. This has been, uh, as usual, a really enjoyable conversation. Uh, I'm just curious, where, where can the listeners go to find out more about Voice Punch, what you guys are doing, or or hopefully uh, some of the different people in here have some good ideas to pitch you on? Where Where can people go to uh, also pitch you their ideas. Yeah, you know, it's it's easy. Go to our website at voicepunch.vc. Um, you can fill out the contact form. I'm also happy to share it's a small audience. You can, you can send an email uh, to me directly at mark at voicepunch.vc and just, you know, just we love we love to connect with it, with the community, whether we, you know, can be helpful in any way we try. It doesn't always mean capital is the help you need, but we, we always like to hear about great opportunities and we'd love to talk to each and every one of you. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks again, Mark, for coming on. Really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, for everybody listening, thank you for joining. You can join us for weekly conversations exploring the, the use cases in the world of voice user interfaces. Again, thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good rest of the week and hope to see you here next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Speechly podcast. If you enjoyed this discussion and are interested in the world of voice user interfaces, we would love if you subscribed and checked out future episodes. And if you are ready to integrate a voice user interface in your website or application, or if you would just like to learn more about the opportunities with voice user interfaces, you should check out our website at speechly.com.